Turns out he's a major cinephile. They don't watch enough movies! It's a very simple formula! And here we go. Well, after a few weeks in scare school, we are finally back to wrap up one of our outstanding multi-part episodes. And since we have a bit of time till that final season of The Walking Dead comes back on August 22nd, instead, with the Black Widow film coming out right now, today, yesterday, but I'm watching it today, it was time to put a bookend on the MCU as a whole. For now, at least. Who knows how many phases we will eventually end up with. Superhero movies are still going strong, and Phase 4 will be a huge, can it still be popular and good trial period. That, and we are still waiting for all the director's cuts from DC. First the air cut, and almost 20 years old, the Schumacher cut has just come back into discussion and release hopes. But with all that in mind, this week is the final half of the supersized Phase 3, including the solo outing for Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther, the two-part capstone to the Infinity Stone saga, as far as the Avengers are concerned, as well as the MCU's heavy hitter introduction to the man that took the internet by storm in Randall Park's Jimmy Woo. This also gave us the introduction to Captain Marvel and the second of the proposed MCU Spider-Man trilogy, which may be the most anticipated movie coming out in 2021 since Endgame. But let's kick this longer six-movie episode off right now. So for starters, the cast of the 2018 film Black Panther is loaded. I know a lot of Marvel movies feel that way, but for standalone movies, this one feels incredibly, extremely packed to the gills. While we have already met a few of these characters, obviously Bozeman, a brief live-action Andy Serkis, gosh, I love live-action him, and a super brief for the other half of the modern Sherlock MCU connection for Martin Freeman. Sadly, these characters will probably never actually come together, which is a true shame. As far as new ads, the list is massive, so I will do my best. This was around the time Forrest Whitaker seemingly was in everything, from this and one of the best Star Wars movies, I Will Die on That Hill, Rogue One. I honestly forgot Sterling K. Brown was in this for a hot second. While he does not get much to do here, his OJ vs. America role was outstanding. I would love to see him in more American Crime Story, or maybe he can branch into American Horror Story. Obviously, Daniel Kaluuya was a stalwart in the Jordan Peele horror masterpiece Get Out, and he will reunite with that director for his new untitled 2022 film. Of course, the big three ads here are Michael B. Jordan, Denai Guerrera, and Lupita Nyong'o. While Guerrera may not be the biggest name of the three, her time with The Walking Dead in the role of Michonne is easily one of my favorite roles, and with how much I love that show. It was great to see her get some time to shine in the MCU, and with a few projects upcoming in this world, I can't wait to see more. While not Nyong'o's most known role, it is her charming role in the Hulu original zombie movie, Little Monsters, which is such a refreshing burst of air in the genre. Speaking of characters here who've been in the zombie world. And of course, her masterful role in another horror movie, Jordan Peele's Us. I will always wish she had a larger role in the Star Wars as well. That seventh movie set her up to be a really fun add to the franchise that Sally never got fully explored after the fact. And lastly, but certainly not least, Michael B. Jordan's return to the Marvel and superhero world after, not his fault, the fantastic flop. 
thankfully, he was given the role of Killmonger to really shine and eat up every moment on camera. As a big movie soundtrack guy, I have Dexter is now newly added as the themes of things on my phone. That's my alarm sound now. This movie gives us the best of everything for really good non-orchestral music. You got an entire Kendrick Lamar album for soundtrack music. You have the genius behind all of the Mandalorian tracks. My favorite Marvel soundtrack song, potentially even more than the main Avengers theme, will always be the Killmonger theme from early on in this movie. It always gets me hyped. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to it, report back on social with how amazing it is and now you know. And if the music doesn't do it, just the visuals alone are amazing here. This beginning of the movie has this lore exploration being told and shown, seeing all this history with this cool grainy metal texture. It's just really cool vibes. Not to go too deep into the Batman Catman vibes, but seeing Black Panther stealth take down an entire convoy of criminals using his fighting and neat tech gadgets, the first action set piece outside of Civil War was just so different to anything in the MCU outside of the start to Captain America Winter Soldier. In general, the cast of this movie and the script they are all given to play with feels perfect. The chemistry and balance of jokes and action serious moments. And in general, I feel like the jokes play better here than some of the Avengers movies. Even the cheesy ones like the Back to the Future sneakers. What are those jokes still get you to crack a smile? And while Wakanda is not the first alternative society in the MCU, somehow this one movie in this fictional country feels better and more realized than all the time we've spent in and around Asgard. And while the crazy tech and GOT politic moments are what this movie is known for, like that Ludwig Göransson song, the museum heist with Jordan and Circus, has the best music. And honestly, that heist is just so cool, as small as it may be. It just feels like something right out of that Batman universe, like that Joker, not as in-depth as the Dark Knight Joker bank heist, but maybe a slight step down from that, but still very on-brand and exciting for me. Maybe it's the fact that this Wakanda world has so much water and nature as opposed to one rainbow road on a floating tech planet. But something about this world, it really is just that visually exciting, and it feels as there's just more culture here that feels a little more varied as opposed to super generic Asgard population that feels like it's made up of soldiers and non-soldiers, and that's kind of it. And those same comparisons exist to the Thor franchise with the Earth locations are as pretty generic in Thor as a Midwest town, a small part of London. Here are the cool nightclub settings and feels more, it's just more overall. It's just cooler. I know I'm going to say that a lot, but it really feels that way. It took till the third Thor to feel a bit more exciting and, well, not globe trotting, but world trotting at least. So most Marvel movies, especially the latter ones, try to have a genre or at least a general moral that they try to get across. This movie, of course, is all about legacy of your family, the good and the bad, mostly about fathers. It is a simple driving force, and the father thing is told a little bit in Guardians Volume 2, of course, but in this movie, it takes that small idea and goes in a ton of different directions, but none ever distract from this overarching theme, something that truly finds a great way to give a connective tie from our main hero and villain, and honestly, this movie shines in part due to having one of the best villains in the MCU. We'll always have Loki, respect Thanos, and like we talked about in the MCU episode, the last one that you've heard, if you haven't, check out Phase 3 Part 1, 
Adrian Toomes, who's played by Michael Keaton, the vulture, was very good for a villain. But Michael B. Jordan is really close to a top three villain. And while we talk about Iron Man suit-up scenes and how cool they all are, this movie had its nanotech suit-up scene earlier, and it's also super cool to look at, even if we don't have 30 versions of this suit. While Andy Serkis was never going to be the most important part of this movie, I know that. There's no doubt about it. You can tell how much fun he had in the role. And while he can't be a top-tier MCU villain from, you know, two smaller roles in movies, I love him in both any, I guess any time, really, he's on camera. I wish he got more time before his untimely death. Thankfully, Martin Freeman gets a ton of time to shine here. He felt very stiff in Civil War. Obviously, he was great in a Sherlock role, saying, I know him for The Hobbits. We talk about how I have a love-hate, more-hate relationship in the Hobbit trilogy. One day, I will maybe understand why I dislike those so much. I think it's because they made three movies and tacked so much onto a book. And I really like the book. I like the Hobbit book. Just the movies did so much nonsense that I was not about. While it's a smaller-scale moment in this movie... The casino fight, even, you know, the whole action set piece visually, it was just so cool. It feels like the camera pans in unique, fun ways to have a flowing shot of all these set piece moments going on throughout the casino. It's just, oh, I, this movie is something I rewatch over and over again because it is such a cool movie that you don't need a whole lot of exposition to understand to get through, but it's just a really cool one-off movie as of now. Speaking of Game of Thrones, we talked about the parallels, be it the political royalty intrigue, there's also trial by combat. Both instances of it in this movie, they're never going to be Game of Thrones intense. There's no eye popping out. These moments and the reasons for Bozeman and Jordan's characters being at odds, it's the most genuine villain motives there is, as far as I can tell. Dad murder, revenge, and trying to liberate a people and balance the scales. It's probably in the top two for MCU villain motivations. And these moments are so good. And while we never think T'Challa will die in this movie so early on, the real drama of seemingly killing him off and changing the whole ruling class in the country, it builds some real drama. And even the end conflict, there are parts it feels justified. And in general, the comeback and bring back of the huge fight scene with tech and armored rhinos. There was just so much good here. And even though the final battle gets a bit CGIE, the final moment of seeing the two estranged related characters watching the sunset and talking about how they could bring back Killmonger, but him refusing first pride and principles. And while with the real-life circumstances and how amazing Michael B. Jordan was, I would love him to come back to the role. But with Namor slash Atlantis and Doctor Doom, Atlantis was teased in Endgame, there just may be too many countries at odds and rulers to throw another one in there. But this movie is, and always will be, an outstanding addition to the MCU. And it gives us Bozeman at his best in the lead role, although he was pretty gosh darn good in 42 as well. Pretty much every alive character is back in Avengers Infinity War, in the first half of the massive conclusion of the Infinity Stone Saga. If a character was pretty forgotten about before, they were probably not in here like Abomination or some of the super niche support characters like Angela Bassett or Michael Douglas. The big omissions will be, and they obviously felt like to anyone watching this, Jeremy Renner, and Paul Rudd. They kind of explained it away a bit with Paul Rudd getting a sequel solo movie in this phase as well. It always felt like the MCU never really gave Renner his due and could have done more. 
it's tough to make Arrow Guy fight on the same plane as literal Thunder God, Green Rage Monster, Super Soldier out of time, and Fancy Robot Guy. It always was going to feel tough for him and Black Widow. Thankfully, they did their work with Black Widow by the end of it, hoping that the new movie is good. That I'm seeing later today, depending on when you're listening to this episode. There is the hope that Jeremy Renner may appear in this movie, and to talk about that Budapest story, maybe we'll finally get some explanation for the multiple name drops of that. But he also has an MCU show on the way, so there'll be a little more Jeremy Renner love. We'll see how his Disney Plus story is. Still have one episode left of Loki to see if I really am all about the storyline. TBD still. It is nice in this movie to finally see Josh Brolin's Thanos character do some stuff. The teases were long, and we never really saw any action, mostly menacingly sitting in a chair. A little more development in the first Gardens of the Galaxy, but our build-up to this moment has been six years prior since that first Avengers tease. And this movie picks up immediately after Thor Ragnarok, depending on where you're counting the placement of this movie and the Ant-Man sequel, based solely on the post credit scene. And coming off the massive team-up, it's a bit shocking to see the aftermath of a bunch of off-camera carnage. You see the deaths of Loki and Heimdall, powerful moments that have lasting implications on the MCU, and more so all of Asgard. Weirdly, the fates of Sif, Valkyrie, Korg, and Meek are not really addressed, but seemingly they're all alive and seen in the next movie. Well, not Sif, but she is apparently going to be back after a crazy long absence since the darkest of days in the MCU in the second of three Thor movies up to this point. This is also one of the few Marvel movies that starts off super dark. Maybe the first Captain America, but this is more for sure. Seeing the newly buffed Thor get squashed immediately, top that off with a final charismatic stint with this version of Loki. Unfortunately, he was gone so quick, and like I said before, they really never knew what to do with Idris Elba's Heimdall. But all these fatalities along with the Hulk getting wrecked by Thanos, the two strongest Avengers at this point being curbed, it kind of sets the stakes. Also as far as the new as, the four hench people of Thanos are intimidating, but I for sure don't have any feelings for any one of them. I care more about Desaad from the extended cut of the Justice League than any of these evil pawns. There's no personality really for me. Also, while I know we can't show everything and have crazy long movies, although that Snyder Cut would beg to differ, why we didn't see Thanos destroy Xandar to get the Power Stone is beyond me. Seeing even a brief planetary decimation and one more look at John C. Riley in the role could have been a fun touch, and maybe, just maybe, we could have had some super early seeds being planted and teases to Nova existing in the MCU deep into Phase 5 or something. The joke balance is also on point here. Nothing feels so dumb. But you do find yourself getting some laughs early on. The Russo brothers really figured out their stuff with two amazing Captain America films. No disrespect to the first one, which I really do like. And the best two Avengers movies. This movie, at times, feels like the exact thing you'd want. A balance of some main Marvel locations and overall unique and fun pairings of all these MCU characters that we've grown to love and adore. And there are many good pairings, like I alluded to in the last episode, the parallels between the origins of Doctor Strange and Iron Man are staggering, and their collective arrogance and almost pseudo-rivalry is a lot of fun to watch. Even small characters like Ned from the Spider-Man franchise, Benicio Del Toro from Guardians, and Wong from Doctor Strange get brief moments to shine, 
and this two-parter immediate feels like it just has something you'd want as a die-hard fan for every little person's desires and favorite parts of Marvel. They're all given some love either in this film or Endgame. We also got some new awesome suit-up scenes both for Iron Man and Spider-Man and the nanotech Iron Man scene rivals all the other suit-up scenes. As always, those are amazing. And you know I'm all about music, and especially the Gardens of the Galaxy music. Oldies music, that's my jam. And Rubber Band Man by The Spinners feels right at home with the other Guardians tracks from Volume 1 and Volume 2 of those soundtracks. Also, who would have thought Thor would have been such a good fit with the Guardians? I can't wait for Part 2 of this to exist in the Thor sequel, no matter how brief it is. After having seen WandaVision now, this really short reality-based love story and seeing person Paul Bettany. Overall, it's a nice really small love story and of course the fighting on the backdrop of Scotland with them both of course giving us more Captain America and a gruff rugged version at that. This underground Avengers team is badass and we'll get to see the jump between this and the Civil War ending of at least Black Widow's character. I don't think we're going to get any Chris Evans here, but we'll see some narrative in between, at least, with her character, thankfully, to cover the gap between those two time periods. But when you see him, the shadowy figure, but I guess we kind of know it's him catching the spear, along with that Captain America theme, simply amazing. I can't tell you how much I was freaking out in theater. This two-movie arc really does find a way to develop and make Thanos not only a threat, but a real person with flashbacks to adopting Gamora by destroying half her planet to just the way he uniquely identifies with every character he's fighting. Even though there were something missed between Drax never getting the chance to kill Thanos in either timeline, you know, unfortunate. Also, did anyone really think Gamora killed Thanos so early on when they're on uh, Nowhere with the Collector? Like, I, I think there was no doubt. <laughs> I don't know. And just to random parts here, right? We don't see Ant-Man, but with the slight reunion of all, most of the Avengers, not the three or four up in space, but with everyone else, you know, oh, that line, there's an Ant-Man and a Spider-Man, will always make me chuckle. And gosh, this movie does seem to have all the musical themes and stylings throughout the MCU you could ask for. When the fight comes to Wakanda and hearing all those same Black Panther themes, you gotta love it. Especially with this being the most screen time for Chadwick Boseman. As of now, this is the closest thing we'd get to a sequel from that original Black Panther movie. And now that I've seen the entire Alien franchise, as you know, a whole episode for y'all to check out if you're in the horror mood and want to get some spooky with your sci-fi. Check that episode out if you're looking for that. But Pop Culture Nick loves a newly appreciated pop culture reference to that franchise in this movie. It feels like, in general, all the fun you get with the pop culture lines does come from Spider-Man and Peter Parker overall. There's some Tony Stark in there, too, but that's why they play so well together. The made-up line's name has to be one of the best lines in the whole movie. They really cast Peter Parker brilliantly. When I was YouTube Nick back in 2013, I had a list breakdown of actors who would be the best for this role. I did have to hunt that list down but I did find it. I don't remember who I put at one, but I did re-upload that video to YouTube for a throwback if you really want to see me from forever ago, seemingly. I think that was the first 
part I ever made. I just never uploaded it, apparently. How about that? While we did get everyone back to the franchise, we always knew Red Skull was going to come back, being more portal than disintegrated in the first Avengers. It's going to be tough to get Hugo Weaving back. I mean, they got a lot of name brand actors back for small roles, but I think The Walking Dead, Nick is all about that. Ross Marquand, he does an admirable job replacing the role, and it's a wispy spirit version. It feels like it would have to be different than Nazi overlord heights of power one. Great villain, just wish it could have been the original, of course. Would have been nice to have Weaving back in Infinity War and Endgame. And I really would have liked to see him in the Matrix follow-up that is ready without Lord Fishburne. That whatever that stupid video game that I never played was is why he's dead is what I'm believing too because it's canon. That's so annoying. But who knows? To the positives of the Matrix sequel, which I still am really excited for. Hoping there's a fake out and Lawrence Fishburne is there. Maybe we'll get a musical number in there somehow with both the Jonathan Groff and Neil Patrick Harris. But, but seriously, let's not do that. Late December can't come soon enough for... That's probably going to be the final HBO Max release movie. Although, there's no way I'm going to miss that in theaters. The Matrix 4 has to be seen in theaters. Tell all the current ads to the MCU that were in here are fantastic. But to new characters, new actors to the MCU. I always feel like Peter Dinklage was kind of wasted in this role. I don't know if it was the aggressive effects placed on his voice. So I never quite felt right with his character, which stinks, because I think he did an amazing job in X-Men Days of Future Past, which was one of the best movies up until this Endgame movie for having time travel and so many characters to balance. I actually have to say, as much as I do like the Guardians and they do have a villain problem, but they're overall strong cast ensemble movies, the team only gets so much time here. In general, they were a huge blast to see working with kind of the opposite of them, some of the more intellectual members of the Marvel canon. This is a long movie, but it never feels like I'm waiting to get done with it. There's a story to tell, and however long it has to get there, this movie does tell it. There's also a nice pre-final act. Thanos sacrificing Gamora is a heavy moment. Maybe not as heavy as the Endgame equivalent, but still heavy. There are rumors of Gamora existing in the Loki TVA show, maybe not this season, but just down the road, this could be one of the only multi-season ones that's not just a limited series run. The end is a sprint to the finish, and a massive one at that, lasting a whole hour. From a hero's battle versus a fairly strong Thanos to a full Wakanda versus space aliens battle. And there's so much action and individual spotlight moments, you have to love it. Even the non-battle scenes with Shuri kind of tech-schooling Bruce Banner. Amazing detail moments. I will never fully appreciate what they did with the Hulk not existing in this movie, or the next one after the fun development from Ragnarok, but seeing Bruce in the Hulkbuster suit is pretty amazing. There was a deleted storyline that could have existed of the end of that having Hulk bust through the armor and exist the Hulk that we know, not this thing that we will discuss when we get to the endgame film. I may have said it before, but this movie feels like it just combines all of the musical themes and tones and characters previously established in the MCU. And not just taking names and actors and making them do things for a brand new story. I really love the Wakanda fight. It is the best. And the end of our story takes place there. But the fight on Titan has some more individual superhero moments. The powers are awesome. Doctor Strange in particular has some visually exciting parts. There is something to be said also, for Pratt's character Quill being partly to blame for the snap happening at all, 
And somehow that never really comes up again. Thankfully, they figured it out and everyone came back for the most part in the end, except for a few people who didn't. I think this movie is also the moment you realize how much stronger Scarlet Witch is compared to everyone else in the movie. Not that you called her that yet, but let's be real. We've all been calling her that and not Wanda Maximoff. Let's let's call it what is. Thankfully, it's officially canon and it's all good now. And in this moment, this has, I would say, the best girl power type moment. The power trio of Scarlett Johansson, Elizabeth Olsen, and of course, I'm happy that Denai Guerrera is in this feels so much better and more natural than the one in Endgame. When we do finally get to the end, the futile attempt to keep Thanos at bay, the even still so close Thor almost killing him moment, and pairing all that with the dusty scene, some of the fakeouts of dusting Black Panther instead of Okoye. Sometimes just people searching for others that had dusted behind a tree or something, they'll never see him. And of course, the most heartbreaking part was the ad-libbed Spider-Man longer, sadder moment of going to dust in Tony's arms. And that being the whole movie, never a more somber part to a series to end that. Not even Empire Strikes Back felt that hopeless. Although that Dobby death in Deathly Hollows Part 1 is pretty brutal too. But awesome movie. Some of the best that Marvel's ever put out to this day. And it may never be able to be topped. So before I get into the Ant-Man sequel, when watching these in the order they came out, this is going to be a huge let off with both Ant-Man and the Wasp and Captain Marvel. Both are between the two films of Endgame. One is pre-Infinity Wars, that is better watch there, I guess before Ragnarok, and one chronologically is the second movie in the MCU, much like the new Black Widow will be right after Civil War. Either way, there's always going to be a bit of a let off. The same main cast is back, which is delightful, from Michael Pena, Michael Douglas, Evangeline Lilly, and Paul Rudd. The new ads feel big name-wise, too, with Michelle Pfeiffer, who really doesn't do a whole lot, and Lawrence Fishburne. I think Walton Goggins is great overall. I will always think of his Hateful Eight role. Still haven't seen Justified. We'll get to that one day. His role feels a bit like his Hateful Eight role here, though. He's supposed to be a sub-villain with the same goofy tendencies that never makes him feel all that bad. Hannah John Kamen is the big bad, in air quotes, but... Around this time, Marvel made their villains kind of good-ish and more misunderstood. They never got to those Loki levels again. We'll never know what Killmonger could have gotten to if he wasn't killed off. We'll see in that Marvel What If show, but that's going to be something completely different animated, and we'll see what it becomes. But his arc that we had existing in Black Panther was beautiful. At least the villain Ghost looks the part and has super cool powers. But the true star of the show has to be Randall Park. His goofy and charismatic FBI one-liners are a sight to behold. The almost light-hearted rivalry with Paul Rudd's character is a blast, and his inclusion in WandaVision and his highlighted moments of learning the magic the second time we see him. It only was possible because of this movie giving him his first MCU role. And if they can ever make a show with him, like the exploring supernatural crimes, I'd watch the heck out of it. WandaVision took 2021 by storm, and it was a thing we needed after the pandemic. Not after the pandemic, I guess right in the onset of it still. And this beginning not only gives us the introduction of Jimmy Woo, but it gives us the it factor for the franchise. The family angle is so present here in seeing Paul Rudd act as a dad while being a superhero. It really is just heartwarming, just like the first film. Family is always at the core of these films, with the Pym family too, and their goal to get their matriarch back. It all feels ties together, but these movies will always just be fun, like Guardians, but even less serious. The whole quantum angle of save a wife or save a life of the girl who is phasing in and out, 
of reality and some mob and government things. There's a lot that the stakes somehow never feel so large or concerning. Maybe just a little muddled. I will always appreciate the ants in the Ant-Man franchise, big or small, never seem to be too much for me. Thankfully, Marvel did not make Spider-Man this way because my superhero fandom would never get over the spider's biggest houses fear. And at this point, you really can't skip any MCU movies and now shows to get what is going on. I'm in too deep. The shrink grow tech is even more fun here. You'd expect a lot, but after the tank keychain and entire Hot Wheels container of cars, and I have my Hot Wheels in my parents' basement, just a building becoming a suitcase on wheels, overall, it's just fun. It is awesome to see the first action of the wasp suit. The shrink powers, the wings, the blasters, it looks even better than the Pimtech break-in in the first movie. Same with the ghost phasing powers. Overall, the fight scenes are probably better here. The stakes somehow feel a little less personal, the old protege angle and Scott being the pseudo-successor and the father-daughter storyline on two fronts. It just was more from that standpoint. But this movie is way more fun, even if the villain thing is super muddied by the end of it all. Thankfully, the Dave Deschmalchen and the rest of Scott's crew angle is still hilarious. The jokes never feel forced, and more often than not, I do find myself laughing more than maybe most Marvel movies overall. I don't think Fishburne will be back anytime soon, but I will hope and be optimistic for some sort of flashback of his working time with younger Hank Pym. More period pieces for the MCU if possible. As the movie goes, the S.H.I.E.L.D. connection is a fun time for a group that is really non-existent in the MCU, and even subtle references are appreciated for me. While I do enjoy this movie, think of it as nothing more than comfort viewing. Some drama, but nothing ever truly feels wild. And while Michael Pena may not be the main part of this movie franchise, his storytelling shtick is, however, at the heart of this franchise. The heartwarming balance of the family stuff and the natural enough humor makes this enjoyable. But overall, the quantum angle trip is a bit much to get behind, which hampers things a bit, even if that does have a big payoff in the next installment of the Avengers movies. But there is a clear drop-off from this to some of the more in-depth Avengers and Captain America movie stakes. The lighter ones just can't compare, no fault of their own, but an overall watch would be better chronologically easily without the expectation of intense drama and stakes between the two end caps to Infinity War and Endgame. While not a movie in the franchise, the more I watch this, maybe the third or fourth time at best, I can't wait to see Hannah John Kamen in that new Resident Evil movie with all the new projects that are coming up. As much as I hope for live action Netflix show to be good, I have so much hope for this movie. Going back to the roots may be a little scarier. As much as I love the cheese of the original six, not the sixth one, the sixth one is garbage, but I need this reboot to be good. But to this movie, the end is chaotic. Some of it is great. The constant shrinking and unshrinking in the car feels something right out of a Fast and Furious movie. I would know. I just saw F9. This movie is fast-paced and once again in just a romp of a time. Obviously better than the zany Fast Furious family movies. This movie knows what it is and there is no balance of too serious that suffered. The big issue in the end, especially watching it, is that when this movie is over, there was never really any villain. Frozen 2 did that, and it super worked, but I feel like this is way more villain things here floating around, but nothing ever really hits and lands. The lack of a real one is a bit jarring. The end has some nice moments of not being either or, 
But they found the wife played by Pfeiffer that saves, goes to. So everything happy comes in the end. But this is marred a bit by a wild goose chase from this building and the quantum stuff. It's just a bit too much no matter what. But no matter your appreciation or not for deeper Marvel things and the Ant-Man franchise in general, it's a fun time. I can only hope this goes into the third movie as well. And maybe that true villain of Kang the Conqueror will be that final missing piece, played by Lovecraft Country's sadly canceled after one season, Jonathan Majors. But maybe that can help raise the stakes and this movie can join the elite Marvel pantheon. And while the stakes aren't always in these movies, the Infinity War setup of Endgame, getting everyone dusted, excluding Scott being trapped in the quantum realm, that scene was dark and amazing and a really good post-credit. It's the reason it's so hard to place this movie the timeline though. Captain Marvel faces a few issues before it begins sadly. From beginning between Infinity War movies to added lore way late in the game. It's not its fault. Birth throwing seemingly the most powerful MCU character to date into things and saying she's existed for ages, second only to Captain America in timeline. The idea of seeing a character existed forever and showing her so late is the same as Halloween or Friday the 13th franchises respectively adding wild mythology late into their franchises so this movie will always have that hanging on itself but period piece nick even if this isn't so far in the past we'll always like these moments and this film gives a ton of nostalgia blasts both pop culture wise and mc wise most of the faces here are new brie larson has the titular lead role ben mendelson coming off his awesome rogue one role is a bit more reserved <laughs> this time around Seeing bad guy Jude Law, spoilers I guess, is pretty fun and something I never expected. I will always think of him as Oldies Watson. Lashana Lynch, who plays the mom to WandaVision's Monica Rambeau, is also a badass here. And man, we can't wait to see what she does in the hotly anticipated, way too delayed, no time to die Bond movie. This is the precursor and inspiration for Tayana Paris's role as the modern-day Rambo. Thankfully, she will be brought into the MCU movie world with the Marvel sequel, and she also has a huge role in the continuation of Candyman. A lot of horror we're dabbling around. You know me, I love my horror. There are some fun returners from Samuel Jackson, a really brief Clark Gregg role, and a few other Kree characters from the first Guardians film. Well, I don't buy the controversy of an actor playing two Marvel roles, this is the first of Gemma Chen playing two roles in the same film universe. I don't think fans will be too confused, but you gotta put it out there at least, especially because her character does say a line of having been to this planet before, which blurs it a little more than I would like. I realize that on the second watch through, or however many times I've seen this movie, maybe three. I also forgot that this was billed as the swan song for Stan Lee, which has also graced many, not just MCU movies with cameos, but other Marvel projects as well. The opening credits have him throughout the now standard Marvel crawl. And while Endgame has his final cameo, we never really talked about these. In general, they really are a nice touch and adds a little Where's Waldo on first time watching all these. But for me, they're just nice. And something with the moment that they have between him and Larson, this just, this smile, it makes you feel warm inside knowing that this is one of the final times you'll see him on film. But yes. These are a nice way to remember the man who helped bring comics to the mainstay of popularity that they are today. Finally, to the movie itself. This movie in general feels 
a bit polarizing for a lot of fans. Some hate it, some are in love with it. I don't really feel like I fall into either camp. Not every Marvel movie is going to be Infinity War. No, thankfully, not everyone is Thor Dark World. But in general, I enjoy all of these, even if some are a bit worse than others. There's nothing inherently wrong with this movie that feels irredeemable, like those Rob Zombie Halloween movies. Boom! Still making fun of those. We'll never stop, can't stop, won't stop. I do think Jude Law and Larson have really nice chemistry together. It's a fun relationship of mentor and student. The Kree world is also super fun to see. And with such a small sample size of them in the MCU, the Guardians had them for a bit. I really wish we could see more of that world. I don't know if they'll revisit in the Marvels, but I really hope they do. I just don't know if they have time as well with Monica Rambeau, a new younger version of a character called Kamala Khan. I just don't know if they're going to have the time for it. I also don't know how much interest I have in the samurai-tired trope of finding yourself. I feel like this has been more successful on some of the non-MCU to this point shows, we'll call them legacy Marvel things, like Cloak and Dagger and The Runaways. Speaking of other Marvel connections, it's nice to get a little more from Jaimon Hansu, who I feel like is talked about a lot by me on this podcast, especially from that last Quiet Place Part 2 role, which was very brief for him, unfortunately. Lee Pace is also back, albeit in a much smaller role from Guardians. Things that are super cool. I like the military strike beginning scene. It has stealth, action, drama, and overall it's a little bit spooky. Honestly, this is probably the coolest visual and action part of the entire movie. Be it the team scuba scene or just the who is who of a scroll and who isn't in every moment. I think that is why it's sad it happens so early in the movie. You can't top that and it feels like something else is missing with what happens next in this movie. Some movies just can't carry on after a big moment or a character death. Just like The Place Beyond the Pines and Burn After Reading. I may not always be super comic book savvy, but I sure know about the Scroll and Cree War, and the idea of neither side is perfect, but normally the straight-shifting scrolls are seen as the villains. And besides going into this movie with that in mind, the overall war story is one I am all about. The corruption of military could have been a nice parallel, but our fake-out not only ruins the cool drama and tension of the scrolls, it sometimes feels like a super heavy-handed metaphor of not judging a book by its cover. While I like that message, it was done just a bit too on the nose. And even while it doesn't end up being such, Ben Mendeshin is like a really good villain, and our early moments with him are sublime. Digging through memories is just a fun storytelling trope out that as well. I do like the sci-fi angle we have going on, not unlike Guardians, but it doesn't quite blend the humor and jokes as well. Part of me wishes this movie was a bit more serious. And while I say that, Contrary to everything I just said, every single nostalgia moment involving blockbusters, a childhood treasured memory is perfect. That alone is, is sublime. No one will ever understand the joy of going to a blockbuster and figuring out how many movies you can get. That and the overall nostalgia with the S.H.I.E.L.D. moments, both overall and as an organization. We got a younger Phil Coulson and the Marvel mainstay of Nick Fury, played by the now Oscar-owning Samuel L. Jackson. At times, I think my biggest issue overall is the way this movie really decides to make the scroll force more jokey. Pretty much up to a small point of one final shield moment, which has real-life mendition after that. Something is just missing. Now, train fights are a dime a dozen, and yes, this one is pretty good. No Marvel superhero train fight will ever top the one from the Wolverine. But this is a pretty strong one, and it does start with an immediate old lady punch fight. And some of that stuff is, like, super fun. But that does show the issue we have with shapeshifters. 
something that is unfortunately briefly explored. And of course, this leads us to realizing we really saw even less of Phil Coulson than I obviously would have wanted to. I wanted so much more. And yes, the S.H.I.E.L.D. notion of calling it S.H.I.E.L.D. completely undermines the Iron Man idea of having them not had an abbreviation, which they clearly had one here. Wanting to watch these in chronological order, the best way to do it, this provides a small but irritating continuity error. If you watch these movies that way, this is the second movie you watch, followed by that Iron Man one, which they'll have immediately the awkwardness of who S.H.I.E.L.D. is, and they don't know who they are yet now they have it already. Larson also has pretty strong chemistry with Jackson. In general, she has strong chemistry with the entire ensemble. Good casting once again. But by the end of this movie, you can see why he needs to call her at the Infinity War snap crisis. The question asked, now of course, is why wasn't she hailed by him in the other world-ending crisis, maybe not every single one, but a couple of those Avengers ones, she probably would have helped out. We know why in the real world, but that too provides a question in the MCU that doesn't really make sense. Top Samuel L. Jackson moments are all involving the cat-like alien codenamed Goose. I was always a dog person, but this movie made me just a bit more of a cat person. Also, quick nostalgia blast, waterfalls existing overall, fantastic. This is heightened for me, this song, by the opening to Scream Queens. And while everyone's talking about American Horror Story, American Crime Story, all those existing, I want to know when this apparent season three is going to debut and be on the docket. I will only believe it when I physically am watching it, be it on Fox, FX, Hulu, or who knows where. At this point, we're all about Monica Rambeau, and our Maria Rambeau time feels short compared to what we got in WandaVision. That's TV shows versus movies for you. And we're all crazy curious how this will be resolved in the Marvels. But this family dynamic is for sure fun. And Carol Danvers talking to young Monica is a really nice look up to moment. And this family group we have, it's just nice. And the scroll thing in general is all about families too. But like I said, I think the issue comes a bit from what has come before. This deep in Marvel lore, there is a lot good here. But there's some by the numbers stuff here too. If this movie wasn't phase one or phase two, I might have been received much better, but overall, Phase 3 is pretty strong, and this is just fine. The end, I think, is a bit chaotic and predictable, and with such a strong first third and some really good buildup, there's just too much humor thrown into this final third. I mean, just look at the buildup to the Nick Fury trusting moment. You keep waiting for an eye injury, and with this person he could not trust ending up being that flurkin' cat. It's unforgivably silly. That being said, seeing full-blown Carol with powers running through ships is truly a sight to behold. There's a lot good here, and there's some clear explanation to the trajectory of the Tesseract, but overall, the movie is just fine. Not bad, but with 23-plus movies, you have to be more than fine to be elite. But this is easily more rewatchable to the later Iron Man films and, of course, Thor Dark World which still feels like the worst of the bunch. So I can distinctly remember watching Avengers Endgame in theaters and the hype of a crowded theater all going through the same emotions together. That was huge, like midnighting the Deathly Hollows Part 2. Some moments you would just remember in a crowded opening weekend theater. And Endgame was one of them. I can't wait to make those memories again. I'm seeing Black Widow soon. I don't expect a wild and out experience, but TBD. We'll report back to you on next week's episode about that. The big new add to this world, especially with the first movie, feels like Brie Larson, just coming off her solo movie. Gosh, I wish they could have introduced her prior, and unlike the last film, 
both Paul Rudd and Jeremy Renner have not small roles, thankfully. Also thankfully, for continuity purposes, seeing Tessa Thompson thankfully alive and well, after not really being mentioned in the last film. Thankfully, they've cleared up that, because that was brutal. We did just see a projection of Sif and Loki, but we need to wait till Thor 4 to see her, unless we have a true Loki surprise coming up. For me, before we dive into the movie, piece by piece, this movie is a love letter to the over 10-year history of the MCU up to this point. Time traveling was a really nice way to see so many characters who were either killed off or from a much older timeline. In all of the references, MCU fans could not help but be excited about this concept and execution. It did lean fairly heavily on nostalgia. So if that was not your speed and you're more casual of an MCU fan, you may not have felt the same effects on watching this as I did. This movie ended us on a fairly downer moment and seeing Renner so early on not only had to happen for continuity and inclusion of the main six, but you knew his whole family was going to be gone. And that hardcore start was just what I was about. And emotion sets you right up so early in the proceedings. This movie overall likes to mix up some pairings of former MCU heroes, something that made the Justice League animated series so great was you never know who is going to go on a mission with who, with so many fun and different characters. And while a ton of these characters just met in the last movie, seeing the survivors deal with grief and interact with others is in both the beginning and also just that time travel sequence. It's really fun. This movie toes the line from depressing and dark to laughable comedy. And some of the comedy moments are a bit much, but we'll get there. Also, unrelated, I will miss bearded, gruff, and tough Chris Evans. It's also crazy that the last movie we did not get a single scene with Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. Not that that wasn't important, it helped with the side effects and fallout of Civil War, which we've heard of them, but never seen them up until this point. Also hearing Steve curse, gosh it's so refreshing, is so much better than that awful language line. The immediate take Thanos scene is so good. The ambush with everyone else's powers, it, it looks neat. And even succeeding here, the overt failure of not being able to stop things and the whole scene, it just its so good and chopping off the infinity gauntlet hand, love the over the top violence to kick things off. And following that up with the decapitation is once again strong. It's never going to be R-rated Logan strong, but for what it is, very good. It is after this that the movie takes a bit of a tumble. The aftermath stuff of five years late is great. A wrecked world, a leftovers-like setting. A criminally underrated show that you should watch on HBO Max if you get the chance. There's something poetic about Steve running a post-traumatic stress group. Not unlike his new BFF Sam Wilson did when they first met so long ago. Those little threads are so good that make the MCU overall just feel realized in a real world. So if you miss the post credit scene in Ant-Man and the Wasp, you should never miss any post credit scene ever. I mean, Marvel is the reason we all now have to Google these things to see if there's a post credit scene or not in any movie without trying to get away spoilers. And yeah, those whole family echoes similarities exist between Scott Lang's perspective. They were the same ones with Hawkeye. His is still sad. A whole memorial monument really encapsulates this whole setting of a dystopian world, which is super cool. Hawkeye went in a much darker direction with the assignment that's only marginally explained at best. We talked about it a little bit. The brief Atlantis teases without a uh, visual tease is great, like Wakanda in Phase 2. Gosh, I hope that Black Panther sequel adds to that lore. And I also hope the way that they go about his absence and addressing it 
adds to some amazing moments of beauty and storytelling. I will say, if there is one beautiful thing in this movie, one thing that is so perfect, it is everything with the casting of Tony's young daughter, all their interactions. He is a great dad, and him being a dad feels like something that every time you see it gives you the hope and a smile to see where he came from in 2008 all the way to here in 2019. Chills every time. And his interactions with his daughter remind you of his times with both Spider-Man and that kid from Iron Man 3. And you gotta think his fatherhood grew from that. And the I love you 3000 line oh, gets you in the heart every single time. Unfortunately, this movie does some weird things with their one-third of the initial strongest characters. Smart Hulk and whatever you want to call this version of Thor is... These are not it. They are distracting and a weird jump on humor. I guess something just never resonated with these arcs they both got. And their super drastic turns that were taken. The jokes sometimes are just a bit too much and distract a bit. Some land... But more than a few do fall flat. I mean, I like jokes. Korg is hilarious, played by Taika Waititi. But they did too much to these two Marvel giants. I mean, Hawkeye only fares so much better. And this is a long movie at three hours. And length is just a number to me. I'll watch a good four-hour movie. My Lord of the Rings, Watchmen, and Justice League Extended Cuts say that as such. So yeah, I would have liked a little bit of more stuff with Ronan. This feels like a crazy abbreviated version of The Wolverine with less gore especially with the same actor in both. And of course, this actor was recently Scorpion in the new Mortal Kombat very good film. I think it was very good. It knew what it was doing, and it was enjoyable and fun. I hope the sequel is also fun and enjoyable and good. But it's all just glossed over here, and a bit of a disservice with him, Jeremy Renner, being gone from the entire previous movie without having that real catch-up good moment like Ant-Man. We will see how this Hawkeye show, if it lands or not. So one hour in, and things are mostly good, but those weird character choices are brutal. But the build-up to the time-traveling, to MCU places of old, it's an awesome dramatic setup. And the Avengers music and the Captain America speech, it is just strong to get us to a new exciting setting. The most exciting setting of the three of these time-travel spots, of course, is going to be New York from the Avengers perspective. We have early Doctor Strange settings with the Ancient One, and a whole heck of S.H.I.E.L.D. nomenclature moments of the past. And there's something fun with an astral projection of Hulk and Bruce Banner. The Thor story is only so strong. All the actors back from their stories, including Rene Russo, John Slattery, Hilly Atwell, and so many more. This helps a ton for the MCU swan song. But Thor's time travel moment is just not as strong. His mom talk is really nice, but there's something missing in his story that the Cap and Iron Man stuff just feels better. But him getting his old hammer back as well is a really fun little moment. The good jokes in this, seeing Peter Quill dancing from a different perspective from the first Guardians without music is truly amazing. But the most nostalgia-laden setting has to be all the S.H.I.E.L.D. guys who turn out to be Hydra guys later on. Agent Sitwell, Brock Rumlow, and Alexander Pierce. And of course, Loki. Heck, this is the inciting incident for that Loki show after all. This has a parallel to the elevator scene from Winter Soldier. And having Cap just saying Hell Hydra, which is a deep comic tie to. Here it's just a joke to get the thing. Wow, what a amazing moment. And the Captain America fight and the whole America's ass. So much good happens so quickly. The Nebula time things too aren't bad. Heck, it makes it all make sense. But somehow that part 
2 only kind of works for me at best. This also would have had a little difference with the deleted scene getting the Soul Stone sacrifice moment. Black Widow and Hawkeye in the version of this we've seen, they fight each other for who can sacrifice themselves for it. But in the deleted version, there's a true fight with Thanos invading. And they say, I think, a line about trying to go to this planet with him and his guards. There's more action, and I like that. But I'm torn about which version is better. I was torn. Both have some merits. But if you haven't seen the alternate one, check it out. Especially with that being the end of Scarlet's modern-day story. Of course, I'm stoked to see the flashback origin movie. But this send-off is something that tugs on the heartstrings, knowing as of now, she is dead dead. I guess the movie version is pretty emotionally strong. The fight part is a bit goofy. Even in theaters, the setup felt a little silly. It does clearly work better the second time watching it, but that setup was a little goofy to start. There are a few parent things in this movie, and there's always something fun about Tony talking to his dad, played this time by John Slattery. I wish we could have gotten more time with the Dominic Cooper version overall in the MCU, but this parent scene is touching, and finally putting a young Pym in the military shield story, like I said. So much of that timeline nostalgia stuff I like. And of course, that final moment with Cap and Peggy, the sticking point to the endgame of him staying in the past and finally having that dance. The best moment we could have hoped for with them. Gosh, that Agent Carter show deserved so much more than two seasons. But at least James Darcy has a tie from that show to this movie. Finally seeing the movie version of that OG Jarvis. And that is our two in the books. Our one is set up, sadness, and of course the odd Hulk and Thor things. Our two is time travel palooza, which mostly works. There are some moments that detract from it, a little bit. But our three, of course, is the planning and final conflict wrap-up. It's a strong hour three, so let's get into it. I honestly forgot, sadly, this movie duology has three snaps. I don't know how. The original Thanos won a race half a life. The second one brings everyone back in the original snap. And the third one happens when Tony ends the war. I know that that's what happens and I it all makes sense, but somehow I forgot this part. Also, the plot armor is strong with this one. Somehow a missile barrage on Avengers campus kills no one. Unbelievable. The Gamora thing never really did get sorted out either. Maybe... This will be further explained in Guardians 3, and allegedly that TVA storyline could focus on this as well. The original Big 3 fight, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America versus Thanos, in general, that is a really nice initial send-off for some of the older ranks of Phase 1 MCU characters. Thor will be back. The other alive Marvel characters only get to do so much, but the action and swordplay was sorely missed from this version of Hawkeye. Thankfully, it's here in bulk. His spy stuff is cool. And whether or not he's in Black Widow, with the Budapest storyline, or just mention, I hope his dad angle show works. I really do. Still iffy on Loki. So the broken sheared parallels from the initial version of Tony in Weekend at Ultrons, it's a nice callback. But the end has two moments that will always be unquestionably amazing. Cat being worthy of Milner, and having him and Thor interact with both being worthy and swapping hammers, Something that was teased so long ago and lovingly crafted and put into this version. Amazing. The other big moment, of course, the one that will give me goosebumps till the day I die, is the on-your-left portal moments of the final big full-scale Team Avengers assemble. That moment alone makes this movie spectacular. And with the real-life passing of Chadwick Boseman, him being one of the first to come through the portal to this day, that too will live on forever. 
the MCU characters coming back is one thing. The music, the Spider-Man, and all. But Chadwick does so much good for your heart and soul. It's like the eighth of the nine Star Wars movies. I don't necessarily love that movie, but when you see Carrie Fisher come back from the dead in that beginning moment, it does something for your heart with our Princess Leia being back from it, thankfully. The action moments in the last action-packed adventure are amazing. Everyone gets group moments to shine. The connections of the Iron People, the Guardians, Spider-Man Iron Man, the Wakandans. Oh, it's all so good. They pack so much into this. And of course, Scarlet Witch almost single-handedly ends Thanos. Gosh, this movie reminded us that she's like the strongest one right now, period. Her or either Captain Marvel. We just haven't seen enough of her to really know. Gosh, I hope they do right by her in her next solo outing. And her hi, Peter Parker. You got something for a moment. I will never think of Pizza Time edit from the Tobey Maguire version. This, of course, brings me to the next moment. I've talked about the girl power moment in Mandalorian. It was natural, amazing, and not forced. The MCU one will always feel a bit forced in this movie. I hate being the white guy who's saying that, but I have to say it. I mean, even seeing both Carol and Scarlet Witch individually take Thanos to town feels better, as is. This, of course, leads to the final moment that talked about sacrifice. The man who started the MCU was the one to end it. And his snap saved the world, killing himself, but ending it in the way that his solo movie ended by announcing himself as Iron Man. Beautiful and poetic. And while we will always wonder what could have been with Nat not only getting a funeral, Tony for sure got one. And man, was it a good one. The long orchestral track is beautiful and great for my Spotify list. It's like a seven-minute song. The tracking shot to all the people in this moment. The kneeling deleted scene was also very good. But what we got was this Marvel voiceover from our leader to his hologram talking to his young daughter. Oh, the end is perfection. Even if young kid from Iron Man 3 is old and super unrecognizable. I had to do mad rapid Googling to figure out who he was supposed to be, like we said. The eventual built Spider-Man Iron Man thing will top that any day. And the speech is one of those motivational ones I will always listen to. Just like that... Life is a movie speech from Om Shanti Om, a spectacular Bollywood film. When you are ever feeling down, listen to the speech and scene with another I Love You 3000 line. Old Chris is a nice touch, especially with the same dance song from the first Captain in America, but Old Cap, we will miss him, even with it being a good way to write him out, but not permanently if they want to give him back into the saddle. Sadly, we'll never know how Captain America and Red Skull's reunion was on Vormir, a true shame. This movie is outstanding, even with my nitpicking. You just wonder if they can ever top these films. They set up some adventures to come, which of course takes us to the epilogue movie we got with another Spider-Man film. For a while, this was the most recent Marvel movie we were going to get. Coming out all the way back in 2019, the future looked bright until Corona hit us all. Thankfully, things are coming back today with Black Widow. This movie has a lot to carry on its shoulders, being the first follow up to the epic conclusion of an arc and an era. And this movie does kind of serve as an epilogue to the Infinity War saga. It knows its place in the MCU, and it serves that role better than it has any right to. You know I think the world of this version of Spider-Man. And these movies are so good and so much fun with Tom Holland, even if I had him at my number two on my list back in 2013 as a young man. The biggest issue with these is, once again, their watchable availability. Not being on Disney Plus, unless you have stars, I don't actually think I know anyone who has that service. Or you have to own a hard copy. If you don't have that, you're out of luck. Hopefully these are coming soon, and maybe one day the Hulk will 
find its way onto Disney+. Plus. You can only hope. Besides the usual spider cast, we get more of Samuel L. Jackson, Jon Favreau, and Colby Smulders. That Iron Man shield part two angle is clearly felt here. This movie crushed having that feeling of Iron Man's legacy all over this movie, after his death in Endgame. The big ad, of course, is Jake Gyllenhaal playing an important but fun Spidey villain Mysterio. No way anyone thought he was a good guy, right? And between his grievances with Stark and bringing in other Stark employees like a scientist from the first Iron Man movie, once again, the cinematic universe has those deeper cuts you love to see. I really do think these two Spider-Man movies so far have really balanced the humor and drama so well. A high school student's story is going to have some of that levity. And like I said, with Homecoming, the coming-of-age story is super fun. And the casting of teachers Martin Starr and J.B. Smoove adds to some highlight moments of humor in the same way that Hannibal Burst did in the previous movie. All three will be back in the third entry coming at the end of 2021. So before I start, the to-do shortlist moment deleted scene should have been included in this movie. It's so good. The vintage Peter Parker New York moments are missed in the whole of this movie. Even those three minutes would have been amazing in this movie itself. And a Star Wars deep pop culture hit from the main cyborg Lobot from Cloud City. Sensational. But pairing his Peter Parker quirks, the Spider-Man moments shine here. From using his high-tech suit to get his passport quicker, to of course the amazing mob takedown restaurant scene in his Iron Spider armor. That scene was so heavily used in marketing materials, to his joking with the local cops. That stuff is crucial for the character and his role as a neighborhood Spider-Man. Something is clearly missing from this awesome movie, and it's that. Beginning just three minutes would have been everything. But to what we got in the theatrical cut, and thankfully that deleted scene is on the DVD. The beginning with Fury is super refreshing, and Mysterio in general looks great. The costume is fire. Also, any movie that starts with Whitney Houston is off to a good one. The bad broadcast quality of the local school TV show will always be an amazing quirk of these movies. And this movie has a super interesting take on the snap and a blip of being there and coming back years later. It's a little goofier. This moment is of course shown from a much more harrowing angle with one of the best parts of WandaVision's modern storyline outside of Agatha all along song because we all know that's the best part but gosh having Tony Stark and Iron Man murals everywhere on the plane with a documentary for Iron Man even just posters and logos internationally and just the whole look of Mysterio being so similar to Tony Stark I know they did that for a reason but you gotta compliment the story makers on that the coming of age story is so good and all the blossoming romance pairs so well with all the teenage awkwardness this may not be my favorite MCU film, but I'm always happiest of smiling watching either of these. Hopefully that sticks with the franchise, but things will probably be a bit heavier with how this one ends cliffhanger-wise, and that was a post credit scene you really couldn't miss. I've never been abroad. I was close to going to Germany twice in my lifetime, but it never materialized. One day I'll do my European overall heritage trip. With that spots, they go six countries and more. But the ever-changing location of just European set pieces once again adds a new angle and set dressing for this movie. While a few people will notice this on their first watch, or I sure didn't, second viewing of the movie and seeing Gyllenhaal's character spying on Spider-Man early on in costume. What a touch. This movie at times argues this world's fascination to adopt heroes. Kind of like a milder The Boys. But it is in this world where fantastic heroes are a dime a dozen. 
that, you know, so openly they'll take on a new sparkly-handed person. A Marvel movie would never say superheroes are bad. That's literally their bread and butter. But it's an interesting angle to throw out on an already unique MCU coming-of-age story. The multiverse moment in this movie sounds great, and I loved it to start, especially with the whole of it existing in Marvel and DC lore. But of course, this movie is a fake-out, the whole MO of Mysterio. And while we're getting a multiverse with the next Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, something with Wanda and Loki too, it's good at the time, but it feels a bit worse the second time around. The Peter Parker start glass is once again amazing. The moment of a kid getting full access to a major weapon system and using that all with his high school growing up hijinks, it's too good. Almost calling a missile strike on another student is hilarious. The highlight moments are endless here. I mean, they coin Night Monkey for stealth Spider-Man suit and that notion travels to other countries with them. The Eurotrip moments, too, are just fun. And while the action here is great, all the fake and real fights look amazing, not unexpected, but the best has to be the bonding of Spider-Man and Mysterio fake out has not only fake-looking Tony Stark glasses moment, which is super good, but the eventual reveal of everything being fake, Mysterio being special effects, costumes, a dialogue story coach. Movie and TV show Nick love that scripting part, with my scriptwriting minor from Ithaca, after all. While the sad part takes a bit to get into in this movie, they exist and not just one. Mostly it's Peter Parker coming to terms with death and coming into his own. But there's one great deeper Marvel cut line that while it's a joke, J.B. Smoove talking about witches, which are super involved in the MCU now thanks to WandaVision. Not unlike the Thor Ragnarok line mentioning vampires that thankfully we will get soon, just maybe with Morbius, but definitely with a new take on Blade. Gosh, we want that badly. While Marvel hasn't gone too far into the scare genre just yet, the Mysterio dream sequence with undead Iron Man and literal spiders, not big Shelob ones, but overall literal spiders, are not good for yours truly. I guess one final thing before the big fight, the Iron Man parallels to Peter tinkering with his suit, so good. But with all this, the Iron Spider suit in the beginning of this movie and his action-packed, would have been so good to have that in there because you never see it again. The fight scene here is fun and the ending is a fun swap out. But how we get here is a bit much. Do I think this is one of the better MCU villains? Of course I do. But with all those drone nonsense things, how does this all not immediately break any trust anyone has in Mysterio immediately? His actual death, which seems real, is good. But the trust placed on him after the very public drone thing, I don't get that part. It always confuses me a bit. But this does lead to the eventual J.K. Simmons post-credit teaser, one of the strongest ones ever. And while he was born to play the role of J. Jonah Jameson, he was easily one of the best parts of the original Spider-Man trilogy. The fake-out of fake news and Spider-Man as Peter Parker is an enemy. The stakes are great, and it makes you super excited for the next movie. But that last part did lose me a bit. They tried really hard with saying the drones are Stark Tech and that's Peter Parker's, but I only marginally buy it at best as an attempt at a lie. So we didn't do a ranking from our Phase 3 Part 1 episode. Here it is. This is a longer episode, so we're going to try to marathon through them. I think most of these movies, if not all of them, have some redeeming qualities, more so than some of the early Phase 1 2 have some baddies in there. So, at 11, it's not its fault. It came out too late. It did a character way dirty being so late. Captain Marvel... Little generic, still enjoyable. Number 10, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Very fun, super enjoyable, but it has a villain problem, tough to avoid it. The next 
two feel kind of similar. Number nine, Doctor Strange. Number eight, Thor Ragnarok. I like these movies a lot. I really like Doctor Strange, and Thor is also very fun. There's a lot of fun in this phase until we get to the serious, serious ones. Doctor Strange, I like Mads Mikkelsen as the villain. Doctor Strange as a movie is cool, and the visuals are great. But the villain problem is still there. Of The actor's great. They're just not as much as I would want for a villain, especially with some of the later ones. Thor Ragnarok, same thing. Movie's great. The squad is good. The new ads are good. The Loki Thor stuff is always good. But Hela is just okay as a villain. We're getting closer to the villain problem being fixed with number seven, Guardians of the Galaxy. Very enjoyable. The Michael Roker stuff is awesome. The dad parallels are great in this movie. As a villain, I don't know how much I love Kurt Russell's version of the character or whatever they went with. But I think Kurt Russell is good in the role. I just don't think the role of the villain works super well here. But the Michael Roker stuff is fantastic. We'll put the next two back to back because they're the same genre and franchise. Spider-Man and Far From Home at 6. Spider-Man Homecoming at 5. They're both good. I think Homecoming has the better villain in Keaton. The really good villain. Not that Hall is a bad villain in Far From Home. And the Iron Man trauma stuff is great. I just think if an overall execution, Homecoming is just a little bit better. And it doesn't hurt that it has actual Tony Stark in there as well. But I really enjoy those. Number four, I think it's a no-brainer. Really strong movie. Just misses a little bit. Captain America Civil War. Really good. Sometimes the jokes are a little iffy. The whole war thing and nothing coming from it is a little bit of a drop-off, unfortunately. With the war, you expected an actual fatality. Not just one guy being kind of paralyzed. But then he clearly is fine because of Tony Stark's money and all the robot leg things. So... It feels like it's almost immediately fixed and doesn't matter, apparently. But I also think they did uh, Daniel Brühl's intro deleted scene really would have made it better. Top three, we got a couple Avengers, Infinity War, Endgame movies, and Black Panther. What we got left, number three, it was really close between three and two. But a three, I got Avengers Endgame. Really good. The nostalgia is awesome. The dark angle in the beginning is great. The end is super dramatic, and there's some amazing nostalgia moments in this. It's really good, but the Thor and Hulk tangents really didn't do it for me. So we have two movies left, Black Panther, Infinity War. It was really close again, really close. But Black Panther at two, Infinity War at one. Black Panther is an amazing solo movie. It might be one of my favorite one-off character it's not Avengers 2.5 it's not an Avengers movie it's the first movie of the character as a full indulged character and it's so good the music the villain the villain is so good in Black Panther but in the same way Thanos is so good in Endgame and Infinity War if you just look at the two Avengers movies Infinity War may not have the fun nostalgia blast but as a full-on movie it's so good Infinity War was probably a little better than Endgame. Not much, but a little better. There you have it, our Phase 3 list. We need to get just one more movie in, and we'll get our entire MCU category list once we have Black Widow. So you have that to look forward to next week. But what do you guys think? What's your favorite of these Phase 3 movies of all 11 of them? Now that we're moving on to Phase 4, with four movies coming out in the summer to fall and winter of this year. Let me know on social, either Knickknack Movies or Knickknack underscore IC on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or Letterboxd. So cinephiles, tune in, 
for the exciting conclusion of Nick Knack Goes to the Movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe analysis. Cheers, and until next time. Are you not entertained? I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I don't like goodbyes. Let's just call this, see you later, alligator.